following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Well, good morning and welcome to the third in a series that I'm calling, Where's Anthony? Which is very similar to Where's Waldo, it just simply involves me and I have less colorful clothing. Uh, the answer to that question, by the way, is that Sheila and I are on our way to St. Paul, Minnesota this morning. I'm going to do some teaching there for a couple days, and so we get a little mini vacation together. So this is one of those Sundays where, as has happened a few other times, uh, typically people who are able to also preach here in the church, their schedules are full. And so uh, Corbin was gracious enough to be able to record this for us today. So. Uh, I'm going to do kind of a standalone sermon. It's not part of a series we've been discussing over the last couple months or half a year, I think, which was Hebrews. This is one that's going to go back to the Old Testament. It seems like a good Sunday to do that after Scott gave us such a great overview of the big picture of the Bible. So we're going to go to a small picture within that big picture, and it's from the book of Judges. So first, I'm just going to read a story. This is from Judges chapter 3, and if you're following along in your Bibles, this will be starting in verse 15. So the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And at this time, they were subjects of another king of Moab. They'd been in captivity basically for 18 years. And the Lord gave them a deliverer, a man named Ehud. Ehud. A man named Ehud. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to the Eglon king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And at the idols near Gilgal, he turned himself back and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, Quiet! I'm working on my kingliness. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. It only gets better. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. After he had gone, the servants came, and they found the doors of the upper room locked, and they said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord had fallen to the floor, dead. So while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills and with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel instead of vice versa. And the land had peace for 80 years. That was verses 15 to 30. Kind of an odd story, maybe uncomfortably specific with some of the details. And how many of us have had an experience in the bathroom when people thought we died? 
But aside from those kind of odd details, it's a very clear story of a guy named Ehud who's pretty clever about getting access to a king who is oppressing them, and he goes about assassinating him, basically, leading the people of Israel into a rebellion that gives them freedom for 80 years. Next verse. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. You're expecting more of a story, perhaps, but that's all we hear about, Shamgar. So let me give you a little broader context. This was Judges 3, where I just read this story about Ehud. In Judges 4 to 5, Deborah, who was one of the judges, she gets two chapters. She gets a song, like she sings for a long time. She happens to mention Shamgar in there, and she points out that when Shamgar became a judge, things were so bad in Israel that tourism had stopped, caravans had stopped. I mean, it was so dangerous, nobody was even showing up. That's Judges 4 and 5. Judges 6 to 8, we get Gideon. Gideon's a pretty famous guy. Judges chapter 9, Abimelech gets a whole chapter describing his judgeship, and he killed his own brothers. Judges 11 and 12, Jephthah gets two chapters, and he's the guy who sacrificed his own daughter uh, through some misunderstood sense of worship. Then Judges 13 to 16, Samson gets four chapters, and let's just be honest, Samson's hardly a role model other than his hair was really cool. So we go back to this Shamgar sandwiched in between Ehud and then all of these other judges who get chapter after chapter, even though at times they were fairly terrible people. In Judges 10 at one point, we read about a man of Issachar named Tola, the son of Pua, who was the son of Dodo. He rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years, and then he died and was buried. He was followed by Jer, who led Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called an apparently unpronounceable name. And when Jer died, he was buried. So we read at the beginning of Judges that whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. So if you were a judge at this time, God himself raised you up. His people were groaning underneath their affliction. He empowers you. He's with you as long as you live. This is pretty impressive. Out of the thousands and thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people, you get raised up. And then we get the record, and some of them get four chapters, and some of them get one sentence, if even that. So I've just, I've thought before, how would I feel if I was Shamgar? I saved my nation by killing 600 Philistines, which what, Basically, it boiled down to was a big pointy stick. And I get kind of uh, just an attaboy, a pat in the back. Hey, uh, thanks, Shamgar. You saved Israel. And it seems like that's the equivalent of maybe talking about the NBA and going, you know, Michael Jordan played basketball too. And that's all you say. Or you're talking college football teams and you're like, Ohio State too had a football team, which would be a huge disservice to the significance of the Ohio State basketball team, or uh, for Beethoven, he too composed music. It would seem like uh, almost a slap in the face 
Like they were so impressive with what they had to offer. So here's Tola and Jer. They're raised up by God himself. And the most we learned about is that they had, there's 30 sons and there was 30 donkeys. And I don't know why that matters. That seems like a really insignificant detail other than apparently donkeys were really cool. I don't know. They had their own donkey. It just seems like compared to the other stories you get, you have significant people, people that God himself raised up and they don't get much attention. And I feel like if that were happening today, what would probably happen is uh, we would feel disrespected. That's a popular term right now. And, and people would, they'd want to go on TV. They'd have a bod- podcast or a blog. They'd do something where they would try to make sure people understood uh, just how amazing they were. I mean, we've got YouTube now. You can certainly get your five to 15 minutes of fame. There's a guy named Ashley Brilliant who once said, All I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. Uh, Which, uh, boys, if you're watching this right now, that will be my next Father's Day t-shirt. So keep that in mind. To whatever degree uh, Ashley Brilliant's comment is funny, I think it's because it's a fairly accurate representation of the human condition. And the biblical narratives often do that. Scott pointed this out last week. A lot of what the Bible captures is just the reality of human life. And here's one of them. That sometimes God raises people up and they get an incredible amount of press. And sometimes God raises people up and all they get is that they too served Jesus. I was reading an article called Unsung Heroes by Riva Pomerantz. Just a, a story of daily life in a house with kids and it seems instructive for what we're talking about this morning. She writes... I was delighted when my husband bought a beautiful name plaque for our front door until I noticed the door. Years of fingerprints, remnants of gummy tape, stickers, and I don't even want to think about what else, had etched themselves onto the once white door. A quick glance from beautiful nameplate to a horrifying door brought me to the only possible conclusion. Clean the door. So, two hours later, the door was sparkling white, and the nameplate was handsomely ensconced in its center. When my kids got up in the morning and saw the complete metamorphosis of the front door, they were, of course, awed. Look, Daddy, they told my husband. I'm working on kid voices, too. Look, Daddy, they cleaned the door. My husband told me of their reaction with some amusement. They cleaned the door, I practically yelled. They is me. I cleaned the door. What do they think? Magic fairies came while we all slept and cleaned the furniture and put away the toys and baked the cookies? So in the grand scheme of door cleaning... I remain an unsung hero. And and I like that term. That's what Shamgar is, along with these other guys mentioned in Judges. Unsung heroes in many ways. And I think one of the biggest hurdles for us as Christians, especially in an age where we can be noticed because of social media, is to figure out what it looks like to be content with being unsung heroes. To not need to be noticed, to not need to stand out, to not need to be somebody in the eyes of somebody else. And I think that's hard. And I can think of a couple different ways in my own life where I've experienced the frustration of feeling like uh, everything else around me seemed to matter except for me, at least in the eyes of other people. So have you ever played a sport and you're really struggling? And for me, well, all the sports I played. Uh, But basketball is a great example because basketball is where my heart was for so many years. My team could win. If I had a bad game, I didn't celebrate with the team or I really struggled to celebrate with the team because I wanted the attention. 
I mean, part of it was I wanted to feel good about myself, which is a whole other sermon. But part of it was I wanted the attention. I wanted to be celebrated. It, it's like when you watch at the end of an NBA championship run. One of the most frustrating things is to see a player interviewed who's like, well, I mean, we won and all, that's cool, but I really didn't get a lot of touches on the ball. I could have scored a lot more points, but I didn't get enough passes. That's a paraphrase of a lot of interviews or a lot of tweets that come out after the fact. That even though others around us are succeeding, we have a hard time celebrating for them. We want to be celebrated. And to miss out on that and give to others what we wish we were getting can sometimes be really hard. Another way I've experienced frustration, and I, I like to think this is something that will resonate with you because I'm within the standard deviation of normal, is uh, I'll do the same thing as another person, and that person will suddenly rise up, and they'll be the one who gets all the accolades and all of the applause. Maybe you're sharing your testimony, and it's a, it's a solid testimony about the faithfulness of God in your life. And someone else shares a testimony, and it's a solid testimony of the faithfulness of God in their life. But suddenly, flocks of people are following them. And you kind of are left alone in the corner of the church or wherever you shared, and it just didn't resonate with other people like their testimony did. And you think, oh, what about me? Did no one hear my story? Do I not matter? And and it's a good reminder, by the way, that whenever people are vulnerable enough to share their stories, be sure to affirm them. But I'm just wondering, what does it look like to offer functionally the same thing someone else offers and then watch them get noticed? It can be hard to applaud someone like that, simply because uh, I, I think we want people to see us. Max Lucado wrote a book called It's Not About Me, and he says in there, I believe Satan trains battalions of demons to whisper one question in our ears. What are people thinking of you? But I think the Bible's pretty clear. There's actually no room for ego in the kingdom of God. That's different than saying there's no room for self. The self is very important in the kingdom of God. But there's no room for ego in the kingdom of God because it's never about us. It's always about God anyway, or at least it's supposed to be. Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew 6, be careful that you don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And the point Jesus was making wasn't that you can't do good deeds in public. His point, I think, was much simpler and much more profound. And that is, if we do good deeds for the applause of people, we'll typically do them in such a way that we'll get some kind of applause from people. If that's why we do it, that's our reward. That's it. But, but what if we do it because God has called us to do it? I think what Jesus is reminding us of is that the applause of people is far less than the applause of heaven. And God sees us. God knows what we are doing. And what we are doing will have a ripple effect through eternity if we're doing it for Christ. And it will be noticed. But the one who notices is the one that matters most. The applause of people is nothing compared to the rewards of our Heavenly Father. Uh, interesting example from the Apostle Paul. He's writing in 2 Timothy, 
This is chapter 4, verse 17. He says, The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Now, if Paul were alive today, we would be clamoring for Paul to write a book, to come to our church and speak. There'd probably be a movie on Netflix. VeggieTales might do something with it. I, I don't know. We'd put him on GodTube. We would want to hear about the deliverance from lions. I'm just going to be honest. If I was delivered from the lions, and I don't mean the sports team in Detroit, I would probably be telling a lot of people about that time of these lions were coming to ma after me, and there was this supernatural thing, and the lions, they couldn't open their mouths or they lost interest. I don't know. But I have a feeling that's kind of my lead story when I'm going places because that's that would be amazing. But I, I suspect the way Paul writes about it is meant to be instructive for us. That is, Paul wasn't looking for celebrity. And I'm guessing he's the kind of guy that if we would invite him to our church and Paul were here speaking and we'd say, hey, Paul, tell us about that time with the lions. I think Paul would probably look at us kind of funny and go, yeah, I was delivered, and then he'd move on. You don't get the sense he would have lingered there because the point of the story was never the lions, and the point of the story was never Paul. The point of the story was about the God who delivered Paul from the lions. I remember years ago, uh, my parents did work with people who were coming out of the occult, and as a result of this, there was a, a lot of what we would call spiritual warfare. And my dad taught a class for a while at Bible college on this. And he told me once that the longer he taught the class, the more he got away from the more sensational discussions about what demonic or angelic activity looks like because he said, it's not the point. The point isn't to be distracted by those kinds of things. The point is always to point us toward Jesus. And if the story points us away from Jesus, it's not a good story about the kingdom of God. Uh, my hunch is that Paul knew that a story about Paul being delivered from the lions was going to be a story about Paul and not a story about the one who delivered him. I think that's what we mean when we talk about the desire for God to increase while we decrease. The story always points toward Jesus. The more I talk about my life with someone, I hope the more it's clear that God has been faithful in me. Not that Anthony has done something amazing, because generally Anthony doesn't. But God does amazing things. And if my story points to that, that's amazing. And if you read what Paul's written, Paul, of all the guys in the New Testament, he has the credentials. There's one place where he's writing, and he basically says, listen, there's these other teachers over there who are telling you they're qualified to teach you. They're not. And he gives, I don't know, it's a chapter, I don't know, this laundry list of reasons why, in their eyes, Paul should be amazing. He does it one time. But that was a smackdown for a purpose. He wasn't there to brag. He was frustrated if you read the passage. Like, fine, let's just establish who I am, then we can move on. And once it's established, he moves on, and he doesn't revisit it. There's another example from Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. This is Paul again. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Hmm. So there's Christians in Caesar's household. Now, here's the big question. Who was it that led these people to Christ who lived in Caesar's household? It was Paul. Now, what Paul could have said, and what I have a feeling would often show up in, in today's kind of media-conscious world is something like this. All the saints send you greetings, 
especially those I converted from Caesar's household in spite of intense persecution to my personal self. I think that's probably where the story would go more often than not today. But Paul doesn't do that. It didn't matter who brought them to Christ. What mattered was that there was people who followed Jesus in the household of Caesar. Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 2, You know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We weren't looking for praise from men, and we weren't looking for praise from you or anyone else. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The meek man knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. So I think this is my question today. Can I live my life with no regard for the glory and recognition of others, but with complete focus on faithfulness and obedience to Christ? I want to give you a couple examples of how this plays out. Number one, uh, am I, and let's make this broader, are we willing to do the hard work of surrendering our character to Christ, being introspective, talking with our spouses, our friends, our kids, our parents, asking them to give input into our life about areas of sin they may see or areas where we're struggling, where we need some kind of maturity, be it emotional or spiritual? Are we willing to do that even if no one will ever really notice or not notice in the sense that they will go out of their way to applaud us for us? Would it be sufficient to do that simply because that's what obedience to Christ looks like? Uh, Discipleship requires this push into maturity, whatever that looks like for you. Can, Can we do that if no one's ever going to applaud us and no one ever... Hold, throws us a party or hold some kind of retirement thing when we arrive, however you want to think of it, simply because this is what we do when we follow Jesus. Are we willing to work really hard to be godly spouses and parents? Can we set our priorities properly? Uh, can we put the needs of our spouse and our kids ahead of ourselves? Can we do whatever it takes to steward our household well, even if no one, ever outside, no one outside our household ever notices? I mean, maybe the people at church have no idea what it's costing us to become people of God in our own home. And who knows, maybe our kids and our spouse and our parents, they they might not even notice really how much we're committing. But is that okay? Can we do that because God has called us to do it? Not because we get the applause of the people around us, but because we get the applause of heaven. Uh, what about volunteering here at church, you know, with Sunday school, with cleaning things up, with ushering and greeting and playing music and working with kids in the summer? There's a lot of ways in which we can volunteer here or in the community. What if nobody ever pulls us aside and says, well done, good and faithful servant? Are, are we going to have to have that before we get um, a little angry, a little bitter, maybe find a church that will actually notice the, the amazing things we have to offer. It, do we need that in order to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ? Now, I hope that in the course of church life, we see what people around us are doing and we do applaud them for what they're doing. I'm just asking, if it doesn't happen, will it knock you out of the race? Or is it just a reminder that's never what the race was about? The race was always about Jesus. Can we love people who seem unlovable? 
and embrace people who seem unembraceable and forgive people who seem unforgivable, even if no one notices. I mean, that person will notice, but I don't know. They might be the kind of person who doesn't thank you, at least how you think you should be thanked. And it might be that no one else in the church or in your community has any idea what it's costing you to become a part of a person's life and invest in them. Is it enough that Jesus sees you and that Jesus has called you to do this, and that he has empowered you, he has equipped you, and the applause of heaven echoes behind your life? Is that enough? Can we live lives of sacrifice without the thoughts of the rewards that this life has to give? I was thinking recently of some friends of mine named Clinton Jolene. They might actually be up here in a couple weeks for church in August. So if they are and they're here in the service, it would be fun if I could introduce them and you would wildly applaud Clint and Jolene. Here's the story. When my dad died, we were living in Michigan. My dad was in Ohio. So we drive to Ohio overnight one night. We get there, I don't know, four or five o'clock in the morning. And if you've ever experienced the death of someone very close in the family, it's a little chaotic. Um, it's just a lot going on. Well, Clint and Jolene, among other things, they cook really well. And Clint was a childhood friend of Sheila's. Jolene is a cousin of Sheila's. I knew both of them as friends. So they basically show up and they do cooking for our family while we're there. And then a couple days later, after a viewing in Ohio, we have to drive to Alabama for another viewing and then a funeral. And Clint and Jolene say, hey, can we rent you guys a van? Um, sure, you, you can rent us a van. And can we travel with you? Sure. And then when we get to Alabama, can we help with the food again? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I told them straight up, I don't know how, how present I'm going to be. And they're like, that's fine. We want to do this for you. And then when the funeral and everything was done, I'm like, they, they headed home. I, I didn't have it in me to be what I wish I could have been as a friend, and it was okay. It was okay. They were just there to serve us. And I don't even know at the time if we told people around us what all they were doing. I don't think they were telling people because that wasn't the point. They weren't doing it to be noticed. They were doing it because they were showing God's agape love to us in the moment. Now, I've talked about them over the years a number of different times because I, I want them to know that I appreciated them. Um, I can tell you with great confidence, we wouldn't need to say anything to anybody and they would do it again because they're those kind of people. They too helped us during the funeral. Not in a way that most people saw, but in a way that was significant. So I don't know, maybe your life is the kind of life that's been written in lights. And as you go through life, people tend to notice things and you tend to get a lot of public applause, not because you seek it. It just happens that people see you and appreciate you. Uh, if so, I mean, that's cool. Be careful with pride. Um, but just because that happens doesn't mean there's something going wrong with your life or you're not in the process of discipleship. Uh, it, it might just mean that God wants your story known in a particular kind of way, especially if this attention is coming to you unwanted and unsought. But then there's the rest of us um, where it's just not going to happen. That there's a lot of things in our life that no one will know. Uh, the cost of discipleship and what it has meant to follow Christ. That could be financially, emotionally, relationally, you name it. People will just never know. 
And, and so we get this record in Scripture, I think, for our good. And, and that is, can we be Shamgar? He too raised his children. She too worked in the church. He too had a job. We could go through this whole list of things, and, and maybe you're even thinking of things right now where you're like, yeah, that's kind of what people think of me. They know I do this thing vaguely, but no one has any idea. Take heart if that can be my encouragement. God sees you, and we're not doing it for the applause of people anyway. We're doing it for the applause of heaven, to be faithful to the God who has made us and called us to this in life. So. Maybe she too overcame addictions, be the most people say about you. And they'll have no idea what it cost you to surrender your life to Jesus to overcome that addiction. Maybe he too had a family is all that will register with people and they won't know the kind of husband or father you've been, the sacrifice that you have put in to loving your family as Christ loved the church. Maybe she too overcame a difficult past Will, all, will be all people know of you, and they won't know the depth of this. We're, we're actually going to hear a testimony next Sunday, or over the next two weeks, actually, we're going to hear testimonies from people who are going to have opportunity to talk publicly about some things in their life, and one of the things I've asked them to do is answer the question, how has God been faithful to you? Because I want us to hear this, and, and you're going to hear from people you don't know this is their story. They didn't seek the glory. I went to them because I happened to know their story, and I said, can you offer this to the church? Because these stories of how God is faithful in our lives, in the midst of even the most daunting situations, is a very, very important one to hear. Uh, so you, suddenly, some people where you might have had a vague idea, it'll become more clear to you. Uh, and I, I hope that opens up some conversations that are good for us as well. So the kingdom of heaven... It's full of, uh, oh, by the way, they too saved Israel kind of people. I think that's probably the norm for most of us, that we put one foot in front of the other in faithfulness to God. The reward that comes from that is a reward that comes from obedience, which has to do with righteousness and purity and this moving deeper into holiness that we were talking about as we covered the book of Hebrews. And I, I find myself often thinking of, the fact that one day we stand before God and those of us who have given their lives, we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the one that we really want to hear it from. So if I have an encouragement to you today from the life of Shamgar in the book of Judges, uh, it's, it's this, uh, be content to simply be faithful to God, whether you're noticed or unnoticed. If you're noticed, uh, don't let pride get in the way here. Pray that Jesus increases as you decrease so that as you come into the spotlight, what is seen in your life clearly is the glory of God at work such that we don't distract from the story we tell about our lives. The, the cool things that God maybe has done in our lives doesn't distract from the God who did it. But we remember what we're offering with our presence and with our story, uh, known or unknown, is simply a representation of the faithfulness of the God who has saved us, who has redeemed not just our lives, but parts of our lives. And the reminder that one day uh, we step into eternity with the God 
who will tell us, well done. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, I'm grateful that you are uh, a God who sees and knows his people. And I pray that you give us the peace and the confidence to follow you faithfully and steadily, to go where you lead us with the confidence that you have equipped us, and to be content to be known by you. And Lord, if we have the opportunity to be known by others, uh, in these th ways in which you do miraculous and amazing things in our lives. Give us the humility and grace, Lord, to talk about our lives in a way that constantly points toward you. And may we do this um, for your glory and for the good of all of us who need to hear the stories of your faithfulness in our lives. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.